0: So, uh, last time in John for a little while, but I remember first hearing a wise little quip, Uh, I'm sure you know it as well, Uh, the only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. (laughs) And uh, this verse we've been in for a month now, John 3.16, dare I say it, is an elephant. (laughs) And uh, after four Sundays in John 3.16, now I understand why theologians from Martin Luther all the way through to men like S. Lewis Johnson refer to John 3.16 as the greatest of all verses. And it's not great so much because it's well known. And it's not great so much because it's popularized by appearing on t-shirts or sporting games, on signs that people hold up or whatever. It's great for the grand truth that it contains. It is an entire forest bound up in a single acorn, as Luther called it. It is a succinct theological explanation and statement of the promise that we have as Christians. The promise of love, the promise of assurance, the promise of blessings, of salvation. We've taken several bites into this Mount Everest, elephant, elephant of a verse. And today we take a fourth and final bite, which really serves as just another turn of the cog again, which drives us deeper still into the glory that this verse reveals about our God. And so never, ever think lightly upon this verse. We've said at the very beginning that the familiarity with John 6, causes the truth to be overlooked. Never ever think lightly upon this verse, or any other portion of scripture for that matter. Though there are portions that expose us to the depths of who God is, and the glory of God like no others. We began by looking at the opening words of verse 16, For God so loved, under the heading, you remember, the God who loved... And more important than the three categories of God's love that we looked at, and as crucial and as vital they are, and to grasp, what the rich significance is, the wellspring and foundation of such a love. And that... It was that love that flows to the believer that comes from inside the eternal confines of the eternal relationship between the father and the son. Where the father only ever perfectly and eternally loved the son. And the son only ever perfectly and eternally loved the father. And how the love that the father has for us, his children, is mediated to us through The son. So as crucial as those categories of love that we looked at repeatedly. Benevolence, beneficence and complacency. As crucial those categories are. Please do not take our work in the very beginning of verse 16. To simply be about those categories. Instead be literally blown away. By the fact that the father's love for you believer is anchored and rooted not in you or anything that you've done or anything that you will do. For there's nothing lovely in you and I. Be blown away that the Father sets His special love reserved only for His Son, which is so eternal which is so immutable, meaning unchanging, be blown away that God the Father sets His forever unchanging love that He has only ever had in eternity for His Son. Be blown away that He has that love for you. And He knows you and I, and He loves us just the same. Those categories are good, but don't remember the categories, remember the love. We then turned the cog a second time, you remember, and we took another bite under that heading, the world who sins from the next portion for God so loved. And then we looked at the world here. We saw essentially that the world is big and it's bad. Allow the love that I just spoke of to inform your understanding and ignite your affections in this Concept of God loving the world because while we saw that the word world there is not being used in a general way here by John but in a particular way, that in no way lessens or weakens the fact that it's used in a particular way and not a general way. That in no way lessens the enormity of God's love. Don't ever do that because God's love goes out to the corners of the world, the very furthest parts of the world and it envelops not just the Jewish ethnicity but every ethnicity including you and I down here in the bottom of the world and those on the other side of the world it doesn't just include the Jewish ethnicity whom are the apple of God's eye, Zechariah 2.8 but his love extends to all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages it extends to in that complacent way, that special redeeming way, to his people for whom he loved with a love of complacency, his special love. And yet further still, the world is big, but also the love of God is so immense in that it goes out to an entire humanity who are sinfully wicked, treasonous, possessing a sinful nature, a truly sinful nature and possessing a truly and actual Guilt. And not a feeling of guilt, but an actual standing of guilt. And that includes the children of God, the elect. While you and I were in our unregenerate state, we too, even though we were eternally loved by the Father, awaiting the time where we would come into possession of all that is, is that is inside the Father's love through Jesus' Jesus, the son's work on the cross on our behalf while we were awaiting that we saw that in our second look, I believe that we as the children of God, while guilty like the rest of humanity, the children of God and the children of God alone were eternally loved awaiting that possession. We too were under the wrath of God for our sin. We did nothing like the rest of humanity, wave our fist at God, commit sinful acts, which we did as rebels to his will. So we joined in the entirety of the world in doing that. And then to an entire humanity like that, God pours out his love. Romans 5 chapter 8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, the children of God, in that while we the children of God were yet sinners Christ died for us. There's such a love to the world, a world filled with the purchased awaiting their possession of full and lasting pardon. We then saw third, number 3, in the next portion of John 3:16, the son who died. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We surveyed the son That He was eternally begotten from the Father, eternally the Son, sent from inside the confines of the eternal love and the relationship between the Father and the Son. And that He was sent as a gift, given, spared not by the Father, relinquished by the Father as a sacrifice for sin. And the Son who came from all eternity, came as the only begotten one... We saw that he was also the God-man, and that was what is meant by the hypostatic union. The son was and is truly God, so as to be an infinite substitute and savior, not just a substitute for one other. And the son was and is truly man. Yes in glory, Jesus is the God-man and it will be the God-man who returns. As a man, he was tempted in all ways that we were, yet without sin. And being a man, he can act as a perfect substitute for us, completing a full and actual atonement. Those were the three parts. This morning we close out this verse with the words of verse 16d under the fourth heading, the gospel that saves, the gospel that saves. And so let's read 3.16 together. I'll make emphasis on our part of consideration this morning. John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our focus this morning is on those words that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You recall each week that we've been in verse 16, we've been piecing together an amplified translation of sorts. Here is what we have so far. God, who is the Father, in this way, that's what is meant by the word so, you remember. It's not so, it's in this way, in this manner. God, the Father, in this manner, loved, not with benevolence, not with beneficence, but complacency, that special love. He loved the world, a world that is big and a world that is bad. He loved it so much that he gave, as a sacrificial gift, his only eternally begotten son. That's what we have. We'll add final parts of that this morning as we look over the remainder of this verse. And those words, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Those words, whoever believe, whoever believes. There's been quite a few parts of this verse from the very beginning of our study that we've Studied, And as you look at them, you begin to unearth the depths of this verse and actually bring clarity to the intention of this verse. And one of those phrases is whoever believes. You see it there in verse 16. Or as it's more well known with those of you that grew up in earlier generations, whosoever believes rc sprawl was one of several who points out things such as the irony of the fact that in the same chapter and in the same context that jesus is teaching that there is a complete and utter necessity on the new birth of receiving the new birth so as to enter the kingdom and you remember we are passive recipients of the new birth we don't believe and then are born again. We are born again and then we believe. R.C. Sproul and others would point out that it is ironic that where Jesus is teaching that we're passive recipients of the new birth, that people go to the—it's the exact same chapter and the exact same passage and the exact same verse that many Christians go to so as to contend that man has the ability freely to choose Christ. I agree with R.C. That is certainly ironic. And it begs the question which R.C. himself poignantly asked about this portion here of 3.16. And then he also answered it too. And so let me quote him verbatim. He said, quote, what does this famous verse teach about fallen man's ability to choose Christ? The answer simply is nothing. The argument used by some people is that John 3.16 teaches that everybody in the world has it in their power to accept or reject Christ. A careful look at the text reveals, however, that it teaches nothing of the kind. The text says nothing, absolutely nothing about who will ever believe. It says nothing about fallen man's natural moral ability, end quote. Strong statement. Where I believe some of the confusion does lie and why so many have their free will ability or free will leanings galvanized is with that English rendering there, whoever believes. That kind of wording lends itself to be incorrectly understood by some to mean whoever from their own capacity or ability, whoever believes from their own ability will have eternal life. As I've said before in our time in this verse, that phrase, whoever believes, is simply in the Greek, everyone believing. In fact, when you take the adjective, everyone, which is pass in the Greek, and you note that it's connected to the verb, believing, kestouon in the Greek, which is a participle, when you take that together, it then adds an even stronger emphasis to it, meaning that to understand this to state all believers is no stretch at all. All believers. In fact, that is how most conservative reform scholars understand this to say. God so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son that all believers do not perish, but have eternal life. Which is consistent with the particular and non-general flow and focus of this verse. And importantly, the context in which this verse finds itself. Which you remember is Jesus having just taught on sovereign regeneration, and now John is making theological remarks upon it. To insert any kind of ability into whoever, the word whoever, would be to short-circuit Jesus' clear teaching on the matter. Jesus himself taught on more than one occasion. John chapter 6 verse 44 is just one example where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Can is a term of ability. May is a term of permission jesus did not say no one may come to me no he explicitly taught an utter inability outside of the new birth this is the clear testimony of several places in scripture hence why he would say to nicodemus and he said it to nicodemus through nicodemus by using the plural back in John chapter 3 verse 7 you must be born again you must be born again so it's far better to view John 3:16 as a theological statement of fact a fact of what a fact of the promise that we receive Far better to view it than that, rather than an inherent ability in mankind or as though contained within John 3.16 is the free offer of salvation explicitly. It's implied and we'll see that later on. But to say that it's explicit, it is, this verse is simply and yet astonishingly a statement of fact about all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Now, I am, I am certainly not insensitive nor impartial to the fact that John 3.16 is a staple in missions and evangelism, and rightly so. I even had a question this week from a dear lady from church who asked if we can still use John 3.16 in our witnessing. Of course, that's the answer. The question got me thinking a little, and I want to say something really important here as we put a bow on this time a month in john three sixteen. as we work through this verse mining the treasures from it which is glory revealed and glory to behold as god's covenant love and god's covenant covenant plan is set before us i do not want you to hear me saying that this provides you with one less reason to preach the gospel to absolutely everybody In fact, what I've been trying to do by drawing all of this out and camping here for a month is to strengthen your resolve for missions and personal evangelism by showing you that we do not offer possibilities of salvation and blessing, but we offer actualities of salvation and blessing. And so I want you to see from this text first the intention of the text. Which is to fill your head with truth and knowledge of God and to flood your heart with the astonishing love of God, his eternal love for you as a child of God, that it might be what you behold as the most important thing from this verse, that you are part of the love gift between the father and the son. As the father's plan unfolds. And his covenant love is showered upon you as you see that in the promise that is here. And then, after that promise is grasped, to show you the implications of such a promise. And the implications of such a love. Which is that we then take this glorious statement of fact, this promise, of which we have been endowed with by divine love, And we then take that, and we offer to people, not possibilities, but accomplishments. When we gaze into what we've been given by the Father in the Son, we behold a glorious and gracious and certain salvation that has occurred. And the implication of that is that we, trusting in the glorious promise ourselves, marveling at the love of God in Christ, we then call others to trust in it for themselves. Just as we've found rescue and rest ourselves in Christ, we call others. We present the promise to others. John 3.16 is really glory to behold. It's a promise to rest in. It's a promise to rejoice in. And then from that promise, we then freely offer that promise to all without exception. It's incredible. We take the love of God, His special love, that is not to all without exception. And we are then filled with gratitude as we understand the enormity of the promise and privileges that we have received. And we then take that and proclaim that to all without exception. So we take an exceptional love and we broadcast it to everyone. For the remainder of the time this morning, I want us to dwell upon two final realities that are in this verse, that are ours in Christ Jesus, that round out the promise we have in John 3.16. And the promise that we are to freely offer to the world. John 3 16 presents us with, you recall, the explanation of the pactum salutis. The pactum salutis. The pactum salutis is a theological term for the eternal decree. The eternal decree. Is a theological term (laughs) and you've heard me say this many many times now the eternal decree of salvation is where our redemption was planned in eternity past by the father and the son planned redemption our redemption was accomplished by the Son on the cross. Redemption planned, redemption accomplished by the Son on the cross, and our redemption is applied by the Holy Spirit in regeneration in time. Where the Spirit comes sovereignly and regenerates the children of God, the elect, whom Received that regeneration because they were those given by the Father to the Son in eternity past, whom Jesus actually accomplished salvation for. That's the Pactum Salutis. Fancy name. Latin. We receive the application of that redemption by the Holy Spirit when we are born again. Born again. And then, by grace alone, we believe. By grace alone, we believe. In Christ alone, and then what do we do? We, are, we then become the believing ones, in verse 16. And at that time, when we by grace believe, faith, trust in Jesus. When we when we believe in Jesus, we are then showered with all the purchased blessings. The purchased blessings. What's meant by that? The blessings that Christ merited for us on our behalf in his living and in his dying, which we could never earn ourselves. And of which we certainly do not and did not deserve. What does that mean exactly to be blessed with the purchased blessings of Christ? Well, number one, it means that the Christian life is more than just sins forgiven. It's more than that. It's not just guilty, not guilty. It's not just dirty, clean it's just not it's not just unforgiven forgiven christian life is far more than that eternal life is far more than that first corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 i'd love for you to turn there with me first corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 what is meant by purchased blessings Look at verse 30, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's just game over. (laughs) That's like I stop right now and I just say, Praise God, hallelujah. By his doing, I am in Christ Jesus. I mean, we sing Amazing Grace. That is amazing grace. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. The verse continues on. Who became to us wisdom from God. And righteousness. And sanctification. And redemption. So that... Just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. The Lord Jesus became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Meaning that he purchased for us sanctification, holiness, glorification. Righteousness, redemption. We are placed into Christ, into union with Him. It's a union that is fixed and permanent. Our union with Christ is eternal. And what is poured out upon us, not a one time deal, but continually is sanctification and redemption, which finds its ultimate sense in glorification. The purchased blessings of Jesus Christ are ongoingly, continually applied to the child of God. Incredible. What we could not do, Christ did, and Christ does. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15 says, "For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who may have been those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance." This is not a one-time deal. Our justification is a one-time deal. We are justified by faith. But never think of the Christian life as simply just zapped with forgiveness, clean slate, and off we go. No. God is at work in us, applying all through life the purchased merits of Christ. And one of those is the promise of eternal life. The result of God's love was the sending of the Son into the world to complete His Father-assigned mission. And the mission was to actually save all those that were given to Him, the Son, by the Father, and saved them He did. He saved all those who believe in Him and all those who will believe in Him. And all those who will believe in Him are guaranteed not to perish, but have eternal life. That word perish there at the end of verse 16 means not to be judged, and it does not mean rather to be judged and then be annihilated. To perish is to be eternally under the judgment of God. The reason perished is used there by John is both to emphasize the security we have as believers. Because our union is eternal. It was placed there to emphasize the security we have as believers, but also to emphasize the perishing is what we deserve. It's all that we deserve. If you look at verse 18 of John 3 for a moment, back there with me. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That word judge there is the word for condemned. To be condemned is to be under the wrath of God. If you look at verse 36 of John 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Present possession, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Everyone who's in unbelief, rejecting Christ, is under the wrath of God and the wrath of God abides upon that person. All may seem well for them in their own estimation as they go about living their life rejecting God, But the truth of the scripture is, is that the wrath of God abides upon them. But you know, for. The child of God. Who has received the immense love of God. Where Christ has purchased. Those blessings of redemption and sanctification and righteousness for them in regeneration. At the new birth, we're spared that wrath. And instead, <laughs> we receive what we do not deserve, eternal life. What a promise we have in Jesus. What a promise. 1 John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says this, Abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us. Eternal life. That promise of eternal life comes from those blessings that Christ purchased for us in His living and in His dying sent from the Father's love. It's December now, which means Christmas is coming. And there's a favorite little hymn of mine. I bet it's one of yours too. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It says this, Born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And contained within that second birth is all the promises and all the purchased blessings of Christ that God in His love lavishes upon us. And Christ comes to Give us freely what he purchased at such a cost. Eternal life. But what is eternal life? What is it? Well, first, eternal life means more than just with God in heaven when I die. It means being in eternal glory with God for sure. Eternally experiencing in the love between the Father and the Son. But eternal life is also having life in His name, while alive now. Having those purchased blessings continually applied to our life, including sanctification through to our glorification. Eternal life is a present possession for the believer, for the child of God. It's not solely something we await. We're not solely awaiting eternal life. We presently possess eternal life. We have been saved and we will be saved. Because we have life and we will always possess life. For the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 verse 3 that this is eternal life. What is eternal life? To know God, he said, to know the one true God and Jesus whom was sent. Incredibly, 1st John chapter 315 says that the believer has eternal life abiding in them. 1st John 315 says that. Death has been swallowed up in Christ's victory. Death has no sting. Eternal life is an abiding reality for us here and now. And the way in which eternal life is ours now. Is really what is meant in John chapter 20 verse 31, which states explicitly the purpose why John was written in the first place. John 20 verse 31 says that this gospel was written that we might believe. And then in believing, we might have what? Life in His name. And what is life in His name? It's the continuingly beholding of the glory of God. We look through this gospel on all of life through the lens of the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory of as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth life in his name is continually beholding the glory of god Revealed in the person of Christ. And I made mention last week that we no longer look at a Shekinah glory cloud. Glory is revealed to us. Jesus is not here presently as the God man. The glory of God revealed in the person of Christ is found for us. In the one place where his glory is beheld the word of God. And as we read the word of God, we are face to face with Christ, beholding his glory. And as we behold his glory, all of those purchased blessings are appropriated more and more. The purchased sanctification is apprehended and appropriated as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what he purchased for us is poured out in us. This is eternal life. This is life in his name. And as we do all that, there is, as I said, that ongoing application of that life eternal. It's incredible, really. It's incredible that in our believing and our abiding in Christ is the ongoing flowing forth of life in his name. It's not just believe and I'm saved. Jesus said in John chapter 11 verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? We keep on believing, we keep on beholding. That is eternal life. Second Peter chapter three, verse eighteen, calls us to appropriate all this. This is not just theory. <laughs> this is not just theological postulants that you just we just hold and do nothing with. Second Peter chapter three eighteen calls us, commands us to grow in grace and knowledge. It's part of the Christian life to grow in grace and knowledge. And as we stare full into the theological fact. And statement of fact that John 3.16 is. And study the depths of it. The promise that it is. And all the glory contained within it. We then apprehend more of the grace and knowledge. That causes us to know God more. Which is what it means to live eternal life. More and more. Appropriating those purchased blessings. That God works in and through us. And so how do we put a bow on this verse? How do we close this most remarkable verse? Here's how. We marvel at what it reveals. It reveals the love of God explained in the pactum salutis. It reveals to us the eternal plan of God. The Father sending the Son to accomplish redemption, purchasing actual redemption and actual sanctification and actual glorification. Which forms the promise. And so the pactum salutis, that plan that is explained for us here, forms the promise that is in this verse that we trust in, knowing... That what we could not do, Christ has done for us and through the Spirit's ongoing application of those purchased blessings will do in us. And so the pactum forms the promise. That is the intention of John 3.16. That is the intention. If we just come to 316 and all we want is the implication of 316, which is the free offer of the gospel without exception to the world, then we literally short circuit the motivation and the grounds by which we would go out and be the instrumental means by which other people come to know Christ. The pactum forms... The promise that's what god wants you to ever gaze into and adore is the pactum and the promise and that then leads to the implication of john 3:16, which is that the pactum and the promise must motivate and ignite passionate proclamation of the free offer of the gospel. If we don't have the fuel, we can't drive the car. The pactum and the promise is the fuel to be able to drive the car. Do you grasp the ramifications of the theological truth of John 3.16? It means that there is... And actual people out there who are purchased. Why? Because when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross, He took every single person, those who aren't even born yet, He took them to the cross and accomplished redemption for them. So the theological truth of John three sixteen, the ramifications of it, it means that out in the world there is an actual people out there who are the purchased. They are presently unregenerate, but they are purchased. Why are they purchased? Because Jesus actually died for them. In that he actually atoned for their sins upon the cross. They are the elect from a big bad world. They are the elect from every corner of the globe. And they are inside the pactum. The eternal plan of God. And they are inside the promise revealed to us in John 3.16. And what brings them into life eternal, and what brings them in to life in His name, is the well-meant free offer of the gospel. And when we offer not possibilities, but actualities, the result is gospel assurance. I recently had an older gentleman come to me and tell me that through these sermons in John 3.16, and he said it in tears, that after a long life lived, he now has assurance of salvation. That's what this does. We present. Actualities, not possibilities. We behold the glory of God revealed to us in Scripture. And then having tasted, as it were, of the enormity of God's love for us, that love motivates us to tell others. But what it also does is it helps people. Who have wondered, have I ever believed enough? Have I ever repented enough? It helps people realize that when you put a simple trust in a very strong Savior, and because it's not your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus. You don't have to worry about if you've believed enough or repented enough. When you grasp the enormity of God's love in that He has accomplished salvation through the work of His eternal Son, and that you are placed into union eternally fixed by trust in Jesus, then all the burden of have I believed enough? Have I, have I repented enough? Is gone. You must turn away from your sin. And you must believe in the Lord Jesus. But a simple trust gets the same strong Savior. And so I'm going to tell you this day. That if there is anyone within earshot of my voice who has not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation, you must do that today. That you must believe upon the one who hung upon that cross, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled all the requirements of. Of the law of God. That you could never fulfill. And that he went to the cross. And he died a death. That you could never die. And upon that cross. He bore all the punishment. That was due you. Because of your sinful. Wicked rebellion. And that he went there. Out of love. Really. Thomas Goodwin said that. Christ is Love. Clothed in human flesh. Sent from the confines of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And he comes into the world and he hangs upon that cross out of love. And he atones for the sin of all those who will believe. And so I have something very well meant. And I have something freely to give you. It is the gift of eternal Life in Christ Jesus. Lay down everything else and come into the greatest joy and the greatest peace that you'll ever experience and the greatest satisfaction because Jesus is sent from the Father to fulfill your greatest longings. And so come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this time. You are immense in your holiness, in your worthiness, in your love. Thank you for the time in John 3.16. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son Thank you for sending your spirit to enable your son in his humanity to endure the temptations, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, that he might stand in our place as our substitute, as a perfect spotless lamb, unblemished. Thank you for the truth that is revealed to us in this verse. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you for all those purchased blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you for our union with Christ Jesus. Thank you for these three individuals who are now going to be baptized to the glory of Christ Jesus. Help us to grasp the immensity of your plan of redemption and your blessing showered upon us that we might be moved and motivated. and ignited to call others to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Be with us for the remainder of our day and may we rejoice in what you do in and through us as we seek to be faithful to you. We thank you for your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.